Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, a, very warm, a very warm welcome to this, which is the latest lecture in the LSE European Institute's Perspectives on Europe public lecture series. Um, our, nose, our nose for the most current and uh, lively public policy issues uh, guided our hand uh, inexorably towards an invitation uh, to uh, our distinguished guest today, who of course is Italy's Minister for the Economy and Finance uh, since April 2013. Uh, and who also happens to be, as it happened, one of Italy's and Europe's most distinguished public servants. So you can imagine our pleasure uh, when Fabrizio Saccomanni uh, accepted our invitation to speak um, on the future of economic and monetary union here at the LSE. Now, apart from having arguably the most important and uh, high profile and, uh, how shall I put this, uh, challenging uh, jobs... Uh, in Italy, in Europe, perhaps. Uh, Fabrizio Saccomanni has been Director General of the Bank of Italy, uh, Deputy Governor of the Bank of Italy, Vice President of the EBRD, based here in London, uh, and many other uh, important roles, including at the European Monetary Institute in the 1990s, um, and uh, the Bank of International Settlements, and the IMF. So uh, we have uh, more than circumstantial evidence uh, that our distinguished uh, guest knows more than a thing or two about economics and finance, which uh, I'm sure can't do um, Italy uh, any harm, I'm sure. Um, uh, his, uh, amongst his publications uh, is a book which came out, I think, about five years ago. Is that right, Minister? Yeah. Uh, Managing International Financial Instability, which I commend to you. We like uh, speakers uh, who set their sights high. Um, and our, our speaker this evening, uh, Minister Sacomani, has certainly, certainly done that. And a heavy, weighty responsibility now rests on his shoulders. Uh, he will follow our usual format of speaking for perhaps 25 minutes or so, and then I'm hoping that we'll have, I'm sure we will have, a lively uh, question and answer session and wrapping up round about um, 7.15 or so. Anyway, without further ado, instead of listening to me, um, we will move to... The main attraction this evening, the only attraction this evening, um, Fabrizio Saccomanni. Um, Minister, the floor is yours. You're very welcome here to the LSE. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Fraser. I <clears throat> am deeply honored to have been invited uh, here to... Uh, to uh, give you my views about uh, the process of uh, economic and monetary union. Uh, this is actually the third time I'm <clears throat> uh, uh, sort of here, invited, been invited here for a lecture. The first time was uh, when I was uh, vice president of the BRD here in London, and I spoke about uh, uh, Eastern Europe and the role of uh, the Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And then... Uh, I came here to present actually the book you mentioned, uh, in, uh, and uh, there was a very uh, lively discussion uh, at that time. So I'm very happy uh, to be here again, and uh, uh, the London School of Economics is uh, a major institution, and uh, I was uh, hoping that uh, I would be invited here to speak about this subject. <clears throat> so 
the, the subject of my talk is, uh, is uh, uh, the future of economic and monetary union. And in fact, the title of my speech is, uh, is Towards a Genuine Economic and Monetary Union with a question mark. Uh, now, the question mark is my own addition to uh, the title of a report that has been uh, presented uh, uh, some time ago by uh, four eminent uh, um, uh, uh, actors on the European scene, you know, the president of the European Council, uh, uh, Herman Van Rompuy, the president of the European Commission, Barroso, uh, the president of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, and the president of the so-called Eurogroup, uh, Prime Minister of Luxembourg, uh, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker. Um, you will see why I've added the question mark, you know, but uh, before, uh, before arriving at the question mark, let's uh, review uh, uh, what, what has happened on the European front. Um, I think this is a good moment uh, to, uh, to look at uh, where we're heading in, in, uh, in, in Europe because uh, I, we went through a very severe crisis and uh, I think the time has come for a frank discussion uh, as to uh, what we want to do uh, with the, with the uh, European construction in the, in the, in the future. And um, uh, it is also important in this country because... Uh, <clears throat> the, the current government would like to have a referendum uh, at some time, uh, I understand, uh, uh, after the next, uh, the next uh, general election. Uh, but still, this is a, a, an important issue that uh, needs to be addressed uh, uh, by, by, uh, by every, everybody in, in Europe and including in the, in the United Kingdom. I think... Uh, the crisis has uh, created uh, a lot of shocks, and uh, at the same time, I think it has pushed uh, European institutions and governments uh, to take uh, uh, a number of impressive measures to safeguard financial stability, to restore the sustainability of public finances in a number of countries, and to radically improve the uh, surveillance procedures uh, uh, for, uh, over economic policies. At the same time, this has changed completely the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the way in which uh, European economic governance is being, is being conducted, has, has changed the European financial system, uh, the rules of the game, and uh, I think uh, a number of uh, novelties have been introduced. But at the same time, the crisis has left us uh, with a very <coughs> uh, negative uh, legacy. Uh, growth prospects have, uh, uh, have been reduced uh, and uh, they are uh, rather weak and, and uneven. Uh, financial fragmentation is, uh, is an issue in, uh, in, uh, in the European financial system and uh, I think uh, the, uh, credit, uh, uh, the credit development uh, uh, process is being uh, hampered in a number of countries and uh, I think uh, the um, flow of credit to the real economy is, uh, is being interrupted uh, in many cases or it is at an extremely uh, high price. So <clears throat> I think this is the right moment to ask uh, what are 
the fundamental aims uh, and the ultimate scope of the of the European uh, of the European construction. As you know, in the, since the the Treaty of Rome, the uh, uh, the policymakers of the time. <coughs> decided to put in the treaty <clears throat> the objective of achieving a never closer union of the of the countries of, of Europe now you know after so many years we have to uh, we have to recognize that this is a, is a concept which is very uh, sort of heartwarming and uh, uh, very emotionally charged uh, but uh, is also very vague and i think the time has come uh, to tell uh, the truth about uh, uh, what uh, what uh, what uh, is the ultimate scope of of, of the European Union, uh, uh, Jacques Delors was a famous president of the uh, European uh, Union many years ago. Uh, he used to say, uh, quoting uh, uh, Jean Monnet, that uh, uh, Europe was. Uh, uh, was uh, bound to make progress with a mask on his face, you know, without revealing its true nature. Progresser au visage masqué. But this is, I think, it's not uh, acceptable anymore. People want to know whether what we are building is, um, is a common market with uh, no rules, uh, uh, except perhaps uh, uh, general principles about uh, fair trade, whether we want to build uh, a confederation of states, whether we want to build uh, a federal state uh, or a super state uh, or just a, a monster bureaucracy that uh, has uh, no legitimacy whatsoever. So I think uh, people have the right to know. And uh, so at least uh, in what follows, I will try to explain what <laughs> I would uh, think uh, would be uh, my, uh, my uh, uh, wish for, for, for the European construction. But first of all, <clears throat> I would like to, to go over briefly <clears throat> uh, the reasons why we, uh, w we have created a, a, an economic and monetary union. And uh, I would like to address uh, <clears throat> this point uh, uh, quite uh, openly and frankly with you, because uh, there is a lot of uh, <clears throat> uh, rhetoric about uh, the fact that this project was flawed in its conception and it couldn't work. And, uh, and a lot of people uh, maintain that the crisis that we've gone through is a proof of the fact that the system was flawed from the very beginning and that, uh, you know, the crisis uh, was, was uh, bound to, to, to follow. Now, I think uh, my view is that uh, the project of creating uh, economic and monetary union was not... Uh, uh, flawed, was not uh, conceived by uh, uh, a, a small group of technocrats, uh, and uh, uh, you know, what went wrong is, has nothing to do with the original design. Uh, I think uh, we have to <coughs> realize that uh, uh, the idea of uh, uh, countries that are closely integrated uh, should not compete uh, with each other with uh, a manipulation of their exchange rate, uh, with currency manipulation. I think is uh, is uh, is a fundamental principle that was, uh, I mean, widely shared also at a political level. And uh, in Europe, we have had a long experience of exchange rate uh, devaluations uh, to. 
to uh, uh, improve uh, export performance uh, at the expenses of our neighbors next door uh, uh, who actually were producing the same goods uh, that uh, each of us was producing. So it was obvious that this kind of competition through exchange rate devaluation was bound to be only a temporary uh, um, solution to the problem of, of lack of competitiveness, you know, and uh, if, uh, if the car uh, you produce uh, are not, are not uh, uh, of good quality, uh, you know, you can devalue as much as you want your national currency, but you're not going to sell uh, more cars, you know, if your competitors' cars are, are better designed, more efficient, and so forth. So I think this is a temporary, uh, a temporary device which has... Uh, the advantage of, uh, of uh, uh, giving an appearance of, uh, of uh, restoring profitability and competitiveness, but uh, which in fact uh, uh, delays the structural adjustments that uh, you know, countries or companies that are not competitive are bound to make in any case. So you only postpone the adjustment and in some cases uh, uh, for too long. <clears throat> At the same time, devaluation creates... Uh, uh, the uh, sort of uh, trade frictions among countries, so there is uh, a tendency for uh, uh, introduce uh, protectionist measures uh, and to retaliate, uh, and this has again uh, a negative impact on the volume of trade and investment and can be some sort of a, of a, of a downward spiral. <clears throat> so I think uh, uh, this uh, uh, fact has to be taken into account and uh, we uh, in Europe, uh, in the, particularly in the, in the 60s and the 70s, we had uh, a, a, a sequence of foreign exchange crises which led to uh, countries increasing interest rates in certain times even at uh, um, double-digit level in order to, to stem capital outflows and protect the exchange rate, then devaluations, then uh, uh, tensions, uncertainty, and so forth. So I think uh, this was uh, indeed uh, a, a, major, a major reason behind uh, the, uh, the, uh, the creation of, uh, of a European Monetary Union. And I think, as I said, it was a, a name that was widely shared at the top political level, and it was... Uh, <clears throat> clearly indicated in the words of uh, prominent politicians like uh, uh, Helmut Kohl in Germany and Francois Mitterrand in France and others uh, in other countries that uh, monetary union was the first step towards economic uh, union, uh, economic uh, policy coordination and political union. I, I mean, you can find uh, these uh, quotations easily on uh, on. Uh, on, uh, on any, any of the, the, the sort of uh, uh, Wikipedia <laughs> type of uh, uh, source. Um, so uh, the fact that, uh, you know, this, was, uh, this project was uh, uh, not a technocratic dream was also confirmed uh, uh, when, uh, with, the, uh, with the move towards uh, globalization of financial markets, of trade, and so forth. And uh, the, the, uh, the uh, 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 
monetary policy coordination and cooperation in exchange rate uh, was seen as a way to protect uh, Europe from the oscillation in the exchange rate of, uh, of the US dollar, which were sort of creating uh, impact of, uh, of a disruptive nature in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the foreign exchange markets in Europe. And of course, you know, with the progress in globalization, uh, monetary union was uh, seen as the instrument to uh, uh, protect the uh, stability of uh, financial stability in the European Union and uh, avoid uh, the uh, uh, risk of, uh, of contagion coming from uh, external shocks uh, like, uh, like uh, then uh, it happened with the, with the, with the crisis in, uh, in, uh, in 2007 and, uh, and the following years. So uh, the <coughs> decision to uh, go forward with, uh, with, uh, with the monetary union uh, was also uh, strictly connected with the progress in the, in the creation of the single market. In fact, uh, I remember that uh, at the time um, the decision to create a single market uh, in Europe came before uh, the, the monetary union, and at that time, a lot of people said uh, the exchange rate risk uh, is the only remaining barrier to the single, uh, single market. You know, we have abolished all uh, uh, tariffs uh, and, and restriction to trade. We have only the exchange rate risk that is a cost that has to be covered, which is the last uh, 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 barrier to, to the, full, uh, the full integration. So uh, this is... Um, uh, this is the, uh, the origin of, of the project. And what went wrong was not uh, the, the fact that the project was, uh, was uh, imperfect, was, was that it was not carried out uh, to its uh, full uh, realization. Uh, the, the decision to create the European Central Bank and uh, which is a federal institution in which uh, uh, all countries are represented but which takes decision for everybody at the center was not followed by a similar development in other fields. Uh, it was a political decision not uh, taken by any uh, technocrats but uh, again a political decision uh, to, to say well we have made enough progress in the towards a federal uh, system, let's uh, stop now for the moment uh, and continue with the, uh, a, a system of uh, um, economic policy uh, uh, coordination based on what is called the intergovernmental uh, approach, namely in which uh, there is no central authority like the European Central Bank or, or like the European Commission that uh, has the right to make proposal and, uh, and guide the process, uh, um, but uh, it is uh, up to the consensus uh, of uh, national governments uh, sitting uh, in, uh, around the table to, to find, uh, to find uh, uh, a, a sort of a compromise solution. Now, De facto, this means that uh, in most cases very little decisions are actually taken uh, because, uh, because uh, this system becomes more a, a forum for exchanging views and, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, doing perhaps uh, what is uh, called uh, uh, peer, peer review or peer pressure. 
uh, in which you know people learn about what uh, policies are being introduced in Germany or in France or in Italy and try to understand what was the rationale what have been the the outcomes and so forth but then you know everybody goes home with its own uh, ideas and uh, and its own uh. so I think uh, th this is my my view uh, the process uh, was uh, a process that implemented various steps. The process has been stopped at the, at the creation of the European Central Bank and, uh, and uh, the, 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 the rest has been left to uh, this intergovernmental uh, approach. So we were in the middle of this uh, when, when the, the global crisis erupted, uh, exploded, and uh, and so the response uh, to the crisis was uh, mostly uh, uh, devoted to uh, create the institutions and the procedures uh, that were not uh, available before. So, of course, we had uh, the European Central Bank, and the European Central Bank played a very important role in, in dealing with the crisis, but uh, that, you know, they... they, they the, the treaty that uh, established the, the European Central Bank did not uh, give the, the ECB the power to um, intervene uh, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, in the bond markets or to do certain type of uh, uh, operations because uh, you know, its mandate is clearly, is clearly defined. So um, we found uh, ourselves that we were not... Uh, uh, we, would, we did not have the instruments to deal with the global financial crisis, with the contagion that uh, this was bringing to, to Europe, and so decided to, to build uh, these uh, 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 institutions and instruments uh, that, were, that were needed. And, uh, you know, I don't want now to, to give too many details, you know, and uh, uh, again, uh, I think, uh, you know, I can broadly uh, group uh, the measures that were taken into three categories, you know. The first uh, were measures to address uh, the, the immediate uh, crisis situation. Uh, the second was uh, to, uh, to create, uh, mostly through a, a strengthening of the fiscal discipline, you know, one of the causes in which uh, the crisis uh, uh, became uh, uh, so serious in Europe because it, uh, uh, it uh, revealed uh, the uh, unsustainability of policies, uh, uh, of fiscal of fiscal policies that uh, did not pay enough attention to uh, the the growing uh, level of uh, indebtedness uh, and uh, and the unsustainability uh, also of uh, large fiscal deficit uh, in uh, in uh, in the in the over over a, a protracted period of time. So there was. Uh, Strengthening of fiscal discipline that was achieved uh, through uh, creation of various uh, uh, legal instruments, a, a new uh, stability and growth pact, the, the so-called fiscal compact uh, integrated by, uh, by the so-called uh, uh, two-pack uh, uh, of measures which uh, indeed give a, a lot of uh, uh, surveillance power and coordination powers to the, uh, the uh, strengthening of, uh, of fiscal policy coordination, 
by, <coughs> by the, uh, again, uh, an intergovernmental body like the uh, European, uh, European Council or the European, uh, European uh, Council of Economic Ministers, the so-called uh, ECOFIN. Then the second group of measures was uh, the, the idea to, to build uh, firewalls to protect uh, the spreading of contagion uh, from, from one country to another, which had been also um, one of the features of the, of, the, of the initial part of the crisis when <coughs> uh, uh, financial, financial uh, uh, instruments of a very toxic nature, uh, like the uh, 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 subprime mortgages, you know, become uh, a widespread uh, instrument uh, to, uh, uh, to speculate and to, <coughs> uh, and to uh, sort of take uh, more risks than, than it would have been uh, prudent to take. So um, the idea to build a firewall was uh, certainly using uh, the, uh, the, the role of the ECB, the European Central Bank, <coughs> which uh, uh, as, uh, uh, was allowed to uh, uh, operate uh, as, a, as, a, as a crisis uh, uh, management tool, uh, particularly through this uh, instrument of the um, uh, monetary transactions, uh, direct monetary transactions, which uh, in principle allow the <coughs> European Central Bank to intervene in financial markets and also the creation of the, of the uh, European stability mechanism which uh, uh, should be, um, uh, is entitled to uh, uh, provide uh, uh, financing for, for uh, uh, systemic crisis uh, in, uh, in, the, in the case of countries that uh, uh, have to carry out <coughs> fundamental uh, adjustment in their, in their uh, uh, economic policies. And then the third pillar uh, of, uh, of the, of the uh, measures taken was to, uh, and here I come to the subject of, the, um, of, of this uh, uh, conversation, to uh, reconsider the architecture of the more European Economic and Monetary Union. And this is actually the, the report that <coughs> was uh, prepared by the four presidents uh, which I mentioned earlier, that was um, discussed uh, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in 2012, and uh, which uh, uh, includes uh, a, a sort of a, a, a roadmap <coughs> uh, with, uh, with uh, precise uh, time horizons, and uh, which should basically lead to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, strengthening and creating uh, a, a genuine economic uh, and monetary a monetary union. Um, now, uh, the, the first stage of this process, uh, which uh, uh, initially uh, was uh, uh, thought to be completed by the end of this year, so we don't have much time left, <laughs> and uh, um, the objective was to create <clears throat> A, a system to ensure the fiscal sustainability of, uh, of economic policies of, mem 
of member countries and also of breaking the links, the, the, the vicious link between the risk uh, of, uh, of uh, sovereign uh, which is uh, uh, associated to the high debts of, uh, of sovereign countries and, uh, and the risk uh, associated with the banking system. The two are, uh, have become increasingly interrelated, uh, creating uh, a sort of a vicious circle of uh, uh, negative expectations whereby a country with a high debt uh, would uh, uh, have a negative impact uh, on the solidity of its banking system. The banking system, a weak banking system would uh, require uh, assistance from the governments uh, which would have to increase uh, their indebtedness and so forth so there would be so the idea was you know to break uh, the link uh, between uh, these two uh, risks and uh, and uh, uh, re uh, reestablished uh, 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 financial stability and in in the in the european banking system now so <clears throat> to achieve these objectives uh, one <clears throat> instrument uh, is uh, uh, a, a strong framework for, for fiscal governance uh, along the lines that uh, I have uh, described and which are de facto being implemented. The second element uh, is the creation of this uh, <clears throat> strengthening uh, the, the project by creating a so-called banking union, you know, because we have a monetary union, economic union, but... Uh, what was missing is a banking union, and the banking union is uh, defined as a, uh, a system in which you have uh, a single uh, authority to supervise the banks, uh, the, or banking uh, supervision and surveillance, and you have uh, a, a, a system that, uh, a single system to assist the banks that are uh, in difficulties, and a, a single system that uh, uh, <clears throat> would uh, uh, provide uh, insurance to depositors that uh, in case they would be uh, reimbursed at least up to a certain amount if uh, uh, the banks uh, was going to uh, fail and the deposits would, uh, would be in danger. So this, uh, this was uh, supposed to be achieved in the first stage and uh, in fact uh, <clears throat> this project of the banking union is making good progress but will not be achieved by the end of this year. It will be probably achieved by the end of next year. And, uh, you know, much progress is being done in creating a single authority to supervise banks that will supervise all the major European banks. But uh, still, lack of progress is being made, is, uh, is to be recorded in the other in the other uh, elements, namely the so-called single resolution mechanism and the, and, the, and, the, and the deposit guarantee scheme. Now, the second stage uh, of, of this project, uh, of this roadmap uh, uh, outlined by the, fourth, uh, by the four presidents was uh, the uh, creating uh, uh, a, a system of... Uh, of uh, 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 convergence uh, of so-called structural policies. You know, uh, one issue that um, is uh, constantly debated in Europe uh, is that uh, we 
have not uh, carried out uh, structural reforms. The system, the European system, is still not sufficiently competitive uh, with countries like China uh, or the United States that are more uh, competitive. And um, so we need to have structural reforms. And uh, while uh, the surveillance at the European level has been concentrated on fiscal policies or, or monetary policy, which is uh, indeed conducted at uh, at the federal level, there is no mechanism to to monitor the implementation of this reform. So the idea would be to introduce in this second stage uh, a a system of uh, of, uh, 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 contractual arrangements. I mean, the words are are not very very pleasant in the sense that uh, uh, there would be a sort of a contract signed between a country and the, the European Union in which the country takes the commitment to, to, uh, to do certain structural reforms in exchange for some form of, of solidarity, uh, financial support uh, and, and solidarity. So this is still in a rather vague, uh, vague stage. And... Um, uh, the discussions about this is just uh, initiated, uh, and uh, and uh, again, uh, it is uh, it is uh, <coughs> of uh, uh, an element of discussion to decide whether you know the, the 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 instrument of this contractual arrangement is indeed the best system to uh, uh, to promote uh, uh, coordination. Uh, uh, among countries, or, or is not just a, a sort of a system of uh, uh, bilateral arrangements, you know, between individual countries and uh, and uh, and, the, and the European Union. Um, then uh, the, the, the 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 third stage was supposed to uh, be the stage in which uh, <clears throat> there would be uh, the creation of uh, of. Uh, of uh, what is called uh, a fiscal capacity. Uh, here again, uh, the, the the words are not <coughs> very very uh, very eloquent, you know, because uh, uh, fiscal union would be better. <laughs> uh, that would imply that uh, there would be a gradual uh, uh, <coughs> a transformation of the of the uh, also of the fiscal. Uh, of the debts accumulated by individual countries would be gradually uh, taken over by by the uh, by the European Union and become uh, uh, and become uh, a consolidated debt of the Union, not of individual countries. Now, this is uh, uh, is something that uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton uh, conceived for the creation of the of the United States of America <laughs> when. Uh, uh, in order to achieve uh, uh, sort of an, an ag- the agreement of these independent states that were still uh, um, uh, having very different uh, type of fiscal policies, but uh, it is <coughs> indeed uh, a major a major issue still uh, debated in which there are strong views uh, opposing it because uh, the idea of putting in common. Uh, the, the, the debts of individual countries is seen as uh, some sort of a, <coughs> uh, 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 I mean, it entails a moral hazard because it would uh, uh, bail out uh, uh, countries that have not been able to follow uh, proper policies. 
And then <coughs> in the last stage, uh, uh, the, the, this report uh, uh, talks about uh, strengthening uh, uh, democratic legitimacy. And again, you know, um, uh, one uh, would want to see more clear reference, you know, are we going to political union, are we going to have a, a federal state or a confederation or what, you know, instead uh, we're talking about uh, democratic legitimacy and, um, you know, what is it, uh, democratic legitimacy in, in the construction that we are, we, we are, we are building. So there is, a <clears throat> there is an element of, uh, of, uh, of ambiguity again, uh, which, uh, which is certainly uh, not, uh, not, uh, not, very, not, very, not very useful. So where, where are we now in the, in, the, in the form of implementation of this project? Well, unfortunately, we have not made uh, much progress, uh, and uh, there is also the feeling that um, the uh, element uh, of uh, uh, of urgency that was initially associated with this project, we need to uh, uh, to explain, you know, to the people of Europe what what do we want, uh, has somehow uh, has somehow decreased. And so, uh, as I said, there has been progress in the in the in the banking union, in the fiscal uh, coordination policies, but. Uh, very little has been done beyond that, you know, the, the, the question of the fiscal union, the question of the political union, and uh, so these are, uh, are, uh, are still very much, uh, very much uh, left uh, in the vague. One positive element is that uh, <clears throat> the European Commission uh, alongside uh, <coughs> the report by the four presidents that I've just mentioned, issued a, a blueprint for, uh, again, uh, uh, making progress towards uh, a, a, a monetary, uh, a true... Uh, 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 they use actually a different wording because they say, they talk about <coughs> a, a, a robust and genuine monetary union. So uh, there is an element of strength. And indeed, uh, <coughs> the European Commission is much more um, innovative and much more uh, uh, proposing uh, innovations, uh, particularly in the field of, uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the so-called fiscal capacity, where they envisage uh, the gradual uh, possibility of the, <clears throat> of, the, uh, of the European Union of creating uh, a mechanism for the redemption of the, of the public debt of European countries and Placing it with uh, with uh, uh, debt issued by the by the European uh, by European Central Authority, and also they advocate the creation of a of a European Treasury that would have uh, the task of um, managing uh, the uh, the uh, the fiscal capacity, as it is called, and the and the uh, issuance of uh, of, uh, of uh, sovereign debt. So. <clears throat> Uh, the, uh, the the commission uh, blueprint, which uh, as I said is more uh, more innovative, um, it uh, it also a little more explicit on the need for a political union, and uh, and uh, and I think uh, uh, it is it is uh, uh, important that they uh, it is the recognition that. Uh, we, uh, we need to uh, move away 
from this uh, intergovernmental approach that I mentioned before. Because um, <clears throat> in order to change uh, this uh, uh, distribution of powers within the Union, you need, uh, you need uh, again uh, a, a change in the treaty. And uh, because uh, if you don't do that, uh, then uh, uh, the intergovernmental approach implies that um, national parliaments would have to play a much greater role than, uh, than uh, before. Because if you have uh, a system in which uh, decision making is uh, at the European level is uh, decided uh, by European instances like uh, the European Council with the proposal of the Commission and the role of the European Parliament, then uh, I think uh, it is... Uh, it has its own legitimacy. If uh, instead uh, you uh, uh, delegate to national governments uh, to take decision uh, in, uh, in some form uh, of intergovernmental uh, uh, groupings, then uh, national parliaments would tend to micromanage uh, the decision taken by the national governments. You know, just to make the issue clear, you know, the the government of Germany is obliged to uh, obtain the approval of the German parliament every time there is a proposal to activate one of these uh, European mechanisms to, to support uh, uh, a country in crisis or to deal with the crisis situation. So you can imagine that uh, you know, if, if you have a, a, a fire in the in the village, and uh, in order to uh, authorize, you know, the fire brigade uh, to use the water, you have to have the permission of the of the city council and so forth. That uh, you know, the fire will, will never be addressed. You know, so I think we have a, a system in which uh, decision making is becoming uh, very much, uh, very much. Uh, 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 very much uh, uh, impossible to, uh, to, to, to achieve efficient results. So, um, in conclusion, what, uh, what does uh, that mean for the prospect for Europe? As I said, uh, we are at a difficult moment. We have the European elections uh, next year. Um, Anti-Europe parties are gaining uh, strength in, e in each country including countries that have been the founding members of the Union, like, uh, like Germany, France, Italy, the Netherlands, and, and, um, and, and people speak uh, uh, openly about uh, the possibility that uh, in, in the next European Parliament there will be a majority of anti-European parties, you know, divided by, by different nationalities, but uh, 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 sort of uh, unified, uh, united in the common aim at, uh, at uh, going backward. Um, now, I think, uh, in my view, the, if that happens, it will be a disgrace for Europe. You know, we would uh, revert back to uh, national protectionist policies. There will be a lot of uh, negative impact on, uh, on, uh, on, on, on trade and investment. And, uh, and uh, I mean, you are, are young people, and uh, so you are accustomed, you know, to, to travel freely in Europe. But, you know, there were... Uh, moments uh, in the not too distant past in which you needed to uh, uh, 
have an authorization to buy foreign exchange to to go to a given country and not uh, above a certain limit and uh, and uh, the you know U rail pass will no longer be possible because there will be <laughs> the different currencies to and the exchange rate fluctuation will be impossible to cover in a, in an efficient way so i think uh, you know we we have to address uh, this uh, this uh, this issue very seriously uh, and uh, and i think uh, uh, we have to make uh, uh, europe more uh, approximate to the needs of the people we have to make the european union more efficient and uh, and more able to to respond now um, I don't want to make a, a long story uh, uh, already long, <laughs> uh, too long, but uh, I would like to recall uh, what um, a dear friend of mine who uh, passed away uh, prematurely, uh, Tommaso Padua Schioppa, who um, was a, a keen observer of European institution, and uh, his point was that Europe does not need uh, more powers. I think uh, it needs uh, to be able to perform the power that it has under the treaty in a more efficient way. And this is the crucial uh, issue at stake today. You know, w there are lots of policies that could be left uh, to national governments and to be performed uh, in a purely national context. But uh, in a global economy, you know, the protection of financial stability, the, uh, the need to embark on a strategy of, uh, to fight, uh, to fight uh, recession at the regional level, to fight uh, unemployment, uh, particularly among the young people, which is uh, a, a common disease in all over Europe, needs to have uh, a, a sort of a, a more efficient uh, and integrated approach. And, uh, the only way to do this is in a very simple way, through majority voting. Now, in, at present, uh, all decisions in, in Europe are taken uh, by uh, unanimity, so that means that every, every country has a veto power, and uh, that, uh, I think, uh, is uh, uh, not uh, very conducive to efficiency and, uh, and, uh, and also to the ability of the European Union to... Um, to be, uh, to be close to, to its citizen. Uh, voting, majority voting would mean moving to more towards a federal state. Well, yes, but you can, uh, as I said, regulate what are the, the issues that are left to the competence of the, of the nation states and what, uh, and what is done at the federal level. You know, I think uh, uh, in the United States, you know, the state of Rhode Island doesn't have a veto power. Uh, on, uh, on what uh, the United States are doing, you know, while uh, uh, Slovenia or Finland uh, do have such a veto power. So uh, I think uh, uh, this, is the, uh, this is the challenge for the future. And uh, I think, uh, you know, it, it is a challenging job, uh, um, but uh, I mean, I leave it to you young people that uh, uh, have to re-state <laughs> uh, what the priorities for the European construction. So no more progresser au visage masqué, but uh, <laughs> openly say what we want to achieve. Thank you for your attention. <clears throat> Thank you very much.
Well, Minister Sakomani, thank you very much for a, a comprehensive, a very wide-ranging, and also spirited and opinionated uh, presentation, um, which I think, um, judging from the reaction, um, the audience has enjoyed very much, but they're going to enjoy just as much the opportunity to put some testing questions to you, I'm sure. We have a little bit of time for that. Um, can I ask you please to indicate, whether, by raising your hand, whether you'd like to uh, ask a question. Please give your name and your affiliation. And, uh, and please keep it short and sweet. Don't try to smuggle the second question in under the cover of the first, uh, please. Um, and, uh, Minister, would you, are you happy to take um, questions in, say, twos or threes, or do you want to take them individually? Well, yeah, whatever, okay. I think. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, if you answer questions each one by one, I think you are more to the point. If you uh, try so. to I sum it so. up, you might answer a question that was never asked, you know. So. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, exactly, that's my feeling as well. Okay, good. So we'll, we'll, we'll make a start. Um, the gentleman at the back uh, in the jacket with his hand raised, uh, who caught my eye, so quite, so yeah, quite yeah. early. Oh, there's the other gentleman. Okay, we'll, no, yes, we'll a, try to. Two, okay. two rows um, behind. Well, the gentleman, you're holding it. The fickle finger of fate has, has placed a microphone in your hand. Uh, please ask the question, but at some point I will go to the, the gentleman at the back who had his hand raised as well. Please, yes. Thank you. My name is Stefano Bonfo. I'm from Italy, based here in the UK. I think you have done a very excellent speech tonight. And it looks very modern. You see Europe like a European a platform as a service. In other words, you try to eliminate the, let's say, try to eliminate the parliament and to have, let's say, direct contact with the citizen. This is what, at least, my understanding is. This is very modern, let's say, approach. Because what we need, we need some kind of, uh, let's say, platform from Europe where everybody can access. Now, what is missing in this talking? It's the concept of how you can reach this objective if you don't have an open access to the information. <clears throat> Still, the different nations are close to each other. So there is no possibility of accessing and to create this new approach towards the citizen. So uh, the question is, you need more, let's say, bottom-up approach, more knowledge, from the bottom, and develop the strategy, and not vice versa, where we have a more approach from up, from top down, where you can start with policy, financial, and then you can develop your monitoring economic system, where you can really, uh, let's say, evaluate and monitoring the strategies. This still is not there yet. Thank you. Thank you. Would you like to? Yeah. <laughs> Can I speak? No, I don't I think, need the I mic think the microphone that's oh, on okay. you should oh, carry. All right, so. yeah, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> no, perhaps I, uh, I was a bit misunderstood. You know, when, uh, when I spoke about the need for Europe to become closer to the citizens, I meant uh, to be more responsive to what uh, people actually need. Uh, and uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, reaction to uh, the deterioration of economic activity, deterioration of the employment situation, uh, of uh, tensions in the financial markets and so forth. You know, the systems that we have developed uh, allow Europe to respond to these crises, to these tensions, to these needs 
only in a very long uh, pr process, you know, and uh, sometimes uh, the uh, ability to uh, understand uh, the, the need for quick intervention is lost. <clears throat> I, um, you, you speak of a different issue, you know, direct access, uh, transparency, this is all uh, important, and I think we are making progress uh, um, in, uh, in this direction, you know, already now, uh, meetings of the of the uh, of the so-called ECOFIN uh, Council of Mi Economic and Financial Ministers. Uh, there are certain sessions that are open to the public, you know. So, uh, particularly the sessions that lead uh, to um, specific decision making. Uh, so, from this point of view, progress is being made. But I do not think that um, we can have. Uh, some sort of direct uh, voting uh, by the people, uh, because this is uh, uh, perhaps uh, uh, a little, a little too far-fetched and uh, perhaps uh, uh, open to possible manipulation. I think uh, you know the the fundamental process of uh, a delegated democracy in which the people vote for their representative, and then the representative uh, uh, take the decision in in, in parliaments. Uh, uh, I think can be improved in terms of transparency, access to data, to information, and so forth. But uh, <clears throat> I don't think it can be replaced by uh, sort of direct uh, access, uh, either via internet or, or whatever uh, new technology. Because, as I said, you know, at present uh, the risk of uh, uh, manipulation and uh, and uh, distortion are, are very are very strong. Thank you, thank you very much. Actually, I mean, just whilst you're on that, I've been very struck by how, how many grassroots sort of online democracy initiatives in Italy yeah. there, there seem to be. It seems a country which is particularly yeah, yeah. Uh, active in uh, promoting this kind of uh, democracy more than most other Yeah, but also in the United States, I yes. think, you know, they have, uh, uh, I mean, they have led uh, electoral campaigns or, or promoted uh, new ideas uh, for uh, political action through... Uh, this uh, grassroots movements, but still uh, the decisions are then taken by, by the Congress. And, uh, and uh, I think uh, the, this can be improved, but uh, uh, the, I mean, I, 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 I'm afraid that this uh, process of direct democracy is mostly, it could be used uh, uh, to uh, uh, sort of to, uh, to, to uh, suggest uh, new ideas rather than uh, implementing legislation. I mean, legislation is a very complicated process and uh, cannot be done uh, <coughs> in an improvised uh, manner. Thank you very much. Um, I think there is the gentleman who was actually... I hadn't forgotten him, but I, I will keep faith with him. So the gentleman at the back, then Graham Bishop. Yes. Um, yeah, please. Thank you, at last. <laughs> okay, my name is David. Um, the question I'd like to ask you is... Where are you from, David? Um, from LSE? I'm from Ealing, so I'm not, I'm not part of the university. But the question I'd like to ask is, what future crisis do you see in the future? And how does this framework help really to avoid the way the, the last crisis of Greece happened? Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, I think, uh, uh, you know... Uh, <clears throat> There is the risk that, uh, as it happens, you know, with the, with the generals uh, that are accused to be fighting always the last word, you know, we are trying to, 
now create uh, the instruments to deal with financial crisis and uh, but maybe the next crisis will be um, uh, could be uh, uh, coming uh, to Europe through a combination of uh, of, uh, of stagnation of economic activity high unemployment among the, the uh, particularly among young people and uh, and then uh, disruptive measures uh, that would uh, bring us back from from the process of integration thereby creating more fragmentation not only in uh, in the financial markets but also in the in the in the in the, in the trade markets and um, and uh, you know uh, uh, I remember that uh, <clears throat> there was a, a book written by uh, an American historian Harold James uh, who wrote a book uh, entitled The End of Globalization and uh, it, the book was issued only a couple of years ago and um, and obviously it was uh, people thought that he would uh, talk about the current crisis instead he was talking about uh, the end of globalization in 1914 um, <laughs> because uh, there was indeed uh, an era of globalization uh, in, uh, uh, between 1870 and 1914, and then the uh, World War One uh, sort of disrupted all this, and then we went through uh, 30 years of uh, mm-hmm. of uh, protectionism, uh, trade uh, uh, retaliation, and uh, competitive devaluation of currencies, and uh, and then to our, to, an, to another world war. So I think uh, uh, this this is. Uh, 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 a situation that uh, can can uh, needs to be quickly addressed, you know, because Europe is a, is a continent where uh, you know the population is aging, and uh, uh, so there are a number of uh, uh, problems also in terms of uh, the sustainability of the welfare state, you know, and if the young people are unemployed and the old people get older and sicker, then there is a, a sort of a fiscal imbalance of major proportion that uh, needs to be addressed. So I think uh, uh, the next crisis is, is a crisis that uh, uh, could be of a more traditional nature in the sense of uh, a period of stagnation uh, in economic activity that may lead to uh, high unemployment and then uh, a crisis of... Uh, Social and uh, and uh, and uh, economic nature jointly together. Thank you. Um, yes, um, Graham Bishop. It's a gentleman. Yes, you got a microphone. Good. Go yes, uh, Graham Bishop. Hi, Graham. Hello. Good to see. You. <laughs> Minister, uh, thank you very much for your uh, comments. Um, and I noticed that you uh, sort of laid out how the uh, improvement in collective governance has happened since the uh, the crisis really began. Uh, in what, two weeks' time, we start the fourth iteration of the European semester, this annual process of bringing together the overview of the, uh, the governance. Um, I was a bit disappointed, to say the least, to read that only, I think it's 15% of the proposals which were, have been approved in the past few years have actually been implemented by the member states. Now, in a year's time, you will be overseeing the start of the fifth <laughs> round. <laughs> So what, do you, what can you do, what do you think you can actually do to make sure these uh, very powerful proposals for improving competitiveness are actually put into practice by the member states so there is this uh, greater collective economic governance? Yeah. <clears throat> well, 
This is one of the uh, things that keep me awake at night. <laughs> Thinking uh, about uh, the the presidency of the European Union in uh, now uh, sort of you know eight uh, eight uh, eight months uh, and and the preparations uh, that uh, are required. You know, in fact, one of the purpose of my visit to London was to start talking to the to the UK government, you know, about um, about uh, how they view the um, the situation in the in the in the period ahead on the, on the European uh, European uh, coordination. Um, but um, you're absolutely right, and uh, I I think we need to find uh, a, a way to implement those recommendations in a way that. Um, People see, uh, I mean, the countries involved see the benefit uh, rather than uh, forcing them to enter into a contractual arrangement that uh, might might face enormous uh, uh, political uh, political resistance at home and uh, and be considered as a, a yet an additional uh, uh, form of uh, interference in, in national uh, domestic affairs, but. Um, Indeed, uh, you know, Europe needs to be more competitive. Otherwise, uh, uh, we we are going to be uh, to be uh, uh, becoming uh, sort of uh, colonized by <laughs> by the former emerging countries who are are soon to emerge in full force and uh, and uh, and uh, displace us from our privileged status. Thank you. Another another question. Is there a lady member of the audience? Lots of gentlemen in suits and things, but um, <laughs> um, yes. So the the gentleman in the yellow in the yellow jumper just sitting on the on the edge there. Yeah. Tommaso Milani, um, PhD student, LSE. Um, in your speech, you did not openly refer to fiscal transfers as a viable policy option to stabilize the monetary union and to address the ongoing issues of um, permanent current account imbalances. Uh, so uh, my question is, uh, well, you didn't openly talk about that just because you think that at the present moment they are not um, viable, politically viable options given the strong opposition coming from Germany and other North European countries. Or maybe because you, um, you think that this fiscal transfer would allow less competitive countries just to uh, delay structural reforms even further. Thank you. Well, I uh, indirectly alluded uh, to this uh, issue when I spoke about uh, um, the, the uh, sort of the, uh, the meaning of the so-called fiscal capacity in the, in the blueprint uh, uh, prepared, uh, I mean, outlined in the report of the four president. I think uh, uh, I, I said uh, it is a major stumbling block at, uh, at present because of the reasons that, uh, that you have mentioned. You know, uh, a transfer union uh, is considered to be uh, anathema in, uh, in, uh, in a number of uh, of countries, in particularly, particularly Germany, because uh, it is uh, it is seen as a as a way to bail out countries that have mismanaged their 
their finances, uh, and, uh, and also for the reason we also mentioned that uh, eventually we'll delay adjustment by solving the, the debt problems that these countries have accumulated. Uh, they will have no incentive to, um, to uh, uh, carry out the structural adjustment measures. Uh, having said that, uh, I think um, uh, I see the need at some point if this uh, uh, union has to uh, really evolve into a political union uh, to, uh, in which, uh, if not for the past, but at least for the future, there would be a joint uh, responsibility for the issuance of debt and for the management of that debt. Because, uh, I mean... Uh, uh, at, at that point, uh, I think the spread uh, uh, between uh, uh, debt issued by Germany or by Spain or Italy or, will be the same, because you know the uh, and that would be a powerful element of convergence uh, in the fiscal situation would uh, 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 greatly facilitate the elimination of the of the financial fragmentation that we are experiencing, because uh, you know. The, uh, the spread, uh, the sovereign spread is the first step uh, on which uh, then you build, uh, you know, the banking spread and then the, the spread that uh, the, uh, the uh, enterprise sector is going to pay. Um, and so that uh, creates uh, uh, uneven uh, credit conditions uh, across Europe. So I think this is an inevitable uh, step that cannot be addressed entirely by the European Central Bank through the promise of intervening in the in the in the in the, in the bond market uh, in case of crisis. It needs to be addressed uh, structurally. That's why, um, uh, you know, even in Germany, uh, some people uh, have uh, outlined the idea of creating a debt redemption fund, which would uh, uh, not uh, uh, remove the responsibility of the country that has created this debt, uh, but would uh, allow its redemption over a longer period of time, uh, guaranteeing that uh, there will be no losses for the, 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 the creditors and so forth. So I think through a combination of these uh, uh, two instruments, uh, I mean a gradual replacement of future debt uh, through uh, community debt or union debt, uh, um, uh, and and uh, a sort of a, a mechanism for that redemption, you can really make a lot of progress in the field of uh, of, uh, of giving a sense to uh, a fiscal union. Any more questions? Please. Yes, the lady in the stripe, black and white stripe. It's you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, my name is Gillian Capiero, and I'm an MSc in criminal justice student here at the LSC. Um, as we progress towards, or as we develop the monetary union, we progress towards the fiscal union. Something that we enable is organized criminal networks um, to pass through the continent in facilitated ways. And you mentioned in your comments that um, the European Union does not need to enhance its powers, rather needs to act upon the ones it already has. But the ones it already has, in terms of law enforcement, criminal control, don't quite function like, don't quite function an ideal way. So, how do you suggest we limit the criminal externalities of increasing fiscal and financial unions? Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's a, a very interesting question. I, must say. <laughs> I didn't think of that, uh, perhaps because of my education as an economist, but uh, I, do, I do see the implications. And uh, I mean, I thought uh, this, as a, uh, to, to use this uh, argument that we need to strengthen the existing powers, not in a, in a sort of as a precluding uh, uh, further developments in other areas, but um, I think at the present uh, stage of the debate in Europe, uh, it is uh, perhaps uh, more conducive to an agreement if you clearly define uh, what are the areas uh, in which you want to strengthen the power at the, at the center. I think um, the, the field of uh, criminal justice, law enforcement, is obviously another area where you, you um, need to have uh, some form of... Uh, uh, stronger coordination, harmonization, and and so forth. You know, otherwise you're going to have uh, some sort of uh, arbitrage of uh, of, uh, of of justice uh, systems. You know, and uh, and uh, in the end, uh, and, and w- but we are, you know, uh, in Italy we are witnessing now this problem of the immigration uh, coming from from North Africa. And, and the Middle East and so forth, you know. And uh, <clears throat> these, uh, these people that come to Italy, to this small, uh, tiny island, uh, which is closer to Tunisia than to Sicily, uh, they, they, they go there because this is the uh, sort of the, the uh, southernmost uh, uh, European uh, symbol, you know. And, uh, and they want, uh, they want to, uh, to, once they are there, they uh, consider themselves free to move to any European countries, and most of them actually want to rejoin their families in, in Germany or France, and, uh, and some of them also want to stay in Italy, but um, it is uh, a European problem. And uh, Europe <coughs> is uh, recognizing this uh, issue only, only lately, and, uh, and eventually, you know, there is a tendency to consider that these people, you know, some of them are criminals that are, uh, so they should be treated as criminals and uh, actually sent back, you know. And others, you know, they are political, uh, they seek political asylum, so they should be accepted. But then when you have a boatload of 500 people who have been uh, sort of almost starving in the high seas, you know, how do you decide who is uh, sort of a criminal and who is a a seeker of political asylum? You you just bring them on board and then you try to manage one way or the other. But uh, at some point you need to have a European approach to this problem because, you know, there are similar situation in, in, in Spain, southern Spain, in Greece, and, uh, and uh, probably in the future also in other Mediterranean countries like uh, Albania, Slovenia, and others. You know. Thank you. Yes, uh, gentlemen at the front. And I'll try and skip through three very quickly, keep them short and sweet. Then Corrado, <coughs> uh, and then a gentleman at the back. There are some people up there, the you know, the, the gentleman at the back, right there. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yes, please. Yes, yeah. thanks. I'm David Tenturi from Chatham House. Uh, I would like to ask you if you could be a bit more specific on the priorities that Italy would uh, set for its uh, period as a chair of the European Union in the, the second half of the next year. And uh, also uh, with respect to the need of uh, um, 
like the redistribution of uh, internal competitiveness in the EU. Um, I think um, it's very important that uh, we, the EU move forward to in the institutional reforms towards the banking union and so forth, but also with respect to these macroeconomic issues and also re the relationship with Germany. And I think Italy uh, is maybe the most uh, indicated country uh, to start addressing this, uh, this very important issue with Germany. So if mm -hmm. you could say something more. Thank you very much. <coughs> well, certainly the agenda of the presidency is going to be crowded by many issues, you know. Um, but there is a, perhaps a, a consideration that has to be made at the outset. Um, there has been uh, uh, indications by, from certain countries, including the United Kingdom, and, uh, but also Germany, that um, they would like to see a, a modification of the existing treaties to accommodate very different uh, needs and requirements. But, uh, you know, as the country with, uh, with the chairmanship, uh, I would like to know as soon as possible whether, you know, we are going to discuss a new treaty uh, in 2014 or whether we are going to discuss the implementation of the directives that we have already uh, put on the table within the existing uh, legal framework. That uh, is going to be a priority condition for determining what uh, what are we going to do and um, but uh, <coughs> uh, uh, I think uh, as I mentioned earlier you know we should uh, we should address the question of uh, of uh, uh, sort of promoting fostering growth uh, uh, recovery of economic activity fighting uh, youth unemployment uh, uh, the highest priority because of uh, the risks that uh, we are running and the uh, time may, may, is going to be is going to be short i mean actually this should be done uh, now because you know the the european elections are are in the first <laughs> half of 2014 and so um, i i hope that we don't find <laughs> that we have uh, we have uh, as i said uh, an anti-european parliament in the, in the second half because that would be um, a serious, a serious disgrace. So we we need to address this uh, as a top priority, and I hope uh, by the time we uh, we have the presidency, we can uh, uh, sort of foster uh, a, a process in which there will be a strong coordination by um, a strong uh, coordinated action at the European level and also at the level of uh, of national of national governments because. Obviously, unemployment is, uh, is uh, in each country has its own features and so forth, but uh, I think one should be able to use uh, the available instruments at the European level <coughs> uh, to the best, uh, to the best, uh, uh, the best possible way, because uh, uh, so far uh, not enough has been done. Very quick. Um, Corrado Macchiarelli. Time, um, Corrado Macchiarelli, European Institute. Um, I have a um, practical question, which is also a bit uh, provocative, if you want. Um, yes. Because you, you say, uh, actually, you talk about uh, integrated approach for structural reforms. Um, and in my views, of course, many employment strategi strategies fell short of their objectives, also at the European level. And um, so uh, what's your view, and uh, if you could spend some words on um, how do you see a, an integrated approach in the sense of fostering people 
to travel more and in Europe in a sense because now what we observe is that there is a certain limited mobility among young people and of course as a way uh, to find youth unemployment of course one would like people to unemployed people in Italy to travel to Germany but still it seems the structural reforms are limited to uh, national uh, uh, borders so to which extent do you think uh, an integrated approach of this kind could, could really work and, and what are the measures that the government is currently putting in place in Italy in this respect, like making exchange programs compulsory could be an idea, for instance. Mm. Thank you. Well, I think you've, uh, you've also, in a way, answered uh, your own question. Uh, the, the answer is yes. Uh, I think... Uh, uh, labor mobility is a crucial uh, ingredient and uh, there are lots of impediments that uh, uh, I mean one issue that we are trying to deal with is uh, the transfer of pension rights from one country to another because people start working in one country then they <coughs> lose their job they want to move to another country but then it's not obvious what, uh, what happens to their pension rights and, um, but there are lots of, lots of other impediments and uh, and uh, these are, uh, it is indeed uh, a top priority. But, uh, uh, you know, the, um, <clears throat> the European Union has uh, um, put up a scheme, the so-called uh, uh, Youth Guarantee Scheme, which is indeed is a European uh, scheme for, uh, for uh, um, uh, sort of uh, providing uh, resources uh, uh, for, uh, that would allow... Uh, people, I mean, companies, enterprises to hire uh, young people that are unemployed, you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, there is a, an element of subsidy, if you want, uh, that is uh, uh, given in order to facilitate uh, the entry into the labor, into the labor market. But um, I think there is a, a lot that needs to be done also in uh, <coughs> uh, closing the uh, what is the mismatch between the skills that uh, people uh, have when they come out of school and, and the skills that are required by um, uh, the modern day industry in, in whatever fields um, and these I've discovered uh, you know, in the few months I've been minister that uh, is indeed a problem that uh, it, uh, it applies uh, to all major European countries in which uh, so there is a need uh, to, to develop more uh, vocational training to, or at least to create uh, a greater, um, uh, a greater uh, acquaintance at an early stage from people when they're still in high school uh, you know, to, uh, to better understand what, are the, what, what it means to work in a, in, a, in a company, in a factory, in a workshop, you know. Because sometimes people have no idea, and even in, in deciding what kind of uh, um, uh, course uh, uh, of studies to pursue, uh, sometimes they, they, they follow rather abstract ideas or inadequate information. So, so this, is, uh, this is an area where, uh, at a European level, a lot, a, lot, a lot could be done. I mean, this kind of... Uh, uh, experiences in uh, uh, of training at the European level you know uh, it's certainly a very a very good idea and uh, uh, I mean it's the same thing as the you know the Erasmus uh, project you know but it should be done 
uh, at the level of the experience on the in on the on the workplace rather than only at the level of you know, attending uh, courses in university and, and so the people could um, could understand what it means at the same time you know i, I understand that there are lots of uh, Italians and uh, the uh, the Italian embassy was telling me uh, they are actually uh, uh, thinking of a program to help uh, these young people that come to to to, to London uh, looking for a job. They have no idea of uh, where to go, what to do, and uh, how to proceed. But uh, obviously, they bring a willingness uh, to. Uh, to, uh, to consult in favor of mobility, which has been absent for quite some time in, um, in uh, at least in Italy. You know, I mean, uh, uh, following the very, uh, very massive migration that we have had in Italy in the in the 50s and the 60s, where uh, you know uh, 20 million people moved from the south to the north and so forth. Uh, there has been a long period in which people say, no, migration is not for me. I want to have the job here where, where my parents uh, brought me up and, and so forth. You know. So now I see that uh, the crisis has uh, again reopened um, uh, by necessity uh, some, some appetite for, for, for mobility, which... Uh, uh, you know, uh, I hope it we would uh, would uh, broaden the, the the prospects, open new opportunities, and uh, and be a positive thing on the whole. I think so. Okay. Yes. All right, uh, gentlemen, right at the back and the, against the wall with the orange T-shirt. And and and, and the, the lady, I'd like to find a and the red uh, the red shirt. Over there. A lady questionnaire. <laughs> Okay. Start with the, okay. the gentleman at the back, perhaps to start, who's had his hand up for a very long time, yes, with the orange T-shirt, with the sort of peach-coloured uh, T-shirt, yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks very much, Minister, for your talk. Uh, my name's Anthony Salomon. I'm a master's student in the government department of the LSE. Just quickly, if I could ask you, um, you seem to indicate in your remarks that um, the f- solution to the crisis is more integration, in particular fiscal integration that would apply in the Eurozone. So if I could just ask you, um, where do you see the countries that are not part of the Eurozone, and particularly the United Kingdom, fitting into that? So that's to say that if uh, European integration is characterized in the future by more political integration in the Eurozone, um, and more fiscal integration, then where do the countries that are not part of the Eurozone fit in? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think... uh, in um, the last uh, year or so, the, the UK government has uh, given uh, uh, indication that um, they, uh, they are not opposed to further integration in the Eurozone. They see it as a... Uh, and they don't want to uh, sort of <coughs> uh, water down whatever progress... Uh, uh, the, the Eurozone members want to make uh, in order to keep the door open for their future accession. So, in a way, this is regrettable uh, from my point of view because I always thought that the full participation of the United Kingdom in all uh, uh, European uh, uh, construction aspects was, uh, was a good thing, you know, because uh, they, they bring a lot of uh, uh, market orientation, pragmatism, uh, and, 
and uh, experience in, uh, in dealing with, uh, with market forces, innovation, and so forth. But if uh, <coughs> the British people uh, prefer not to uh, be part of this club, then I think the club should no longer feel obliged to uh, keep the, the, the door permanently open even at the risk of getting some cold air, you know, <laughs> and catching a cold. <laughs> and <laughs> so, um, you know, more seriously, uh, uh, this would probably um, uh, formalize uh, some sort of a two-speed Europe or a two-tier Europe, which, uh, um, which in my view uh, should not be a permanent character, but it may be that in the present situation in which uh, we're in, uh, uh, the, the, it, it's better to clarify what are the responsibilities uh, of, each, uh, of each of the, of the two groups. I think um, countries in the Eurozone uh, uh, feel that uh, you know, this is, uh, uh, you know, the, pro, the process towards greater integration is almost uh, uh, inevitable, it's a, it's, a, it's a necessity. At the same time, we have to keep uh, a good relationship with a, with a partner country like uh, Britain, with, uh, you know, which is one of the major trading partners and um, you know, it's a major financial center. Uh, you know, I, I, for one, believe that if uh, Britain was a member of the euro, it would be inevitable that the European Central Bank would be located in London. But uh, uh, this aspect has not obviously <laughs> been fully considered uh, at, at the time. You know? So now we have it, you know, and, uh, and uh, that, that uh, I think uh, is uh, not uh, without uh, implications. Um, but as I said, you know, for the time being, it could be, it could be a solution. Right, last question. Is there anyone um, maybe at the back uh, whose hopes I've cruelly dashed, unwittingly I might add, uh, but who had legitimate hopes of being cool? Um, the gentleman uh, with his hand raised, uh, the grey the gray top. Yeah. Um, hello, I'm Mattia Barina, second year student here at LSE. Uh, do you think an economic and monetary union can be sustainable in the long run without a banking union? I think you touched on the topic during your speech, but... Um, as, as far as the sustainability of the Eurozone is concerned? No, no, I think um, <clears throat> I think I said that uh, the, the banking union is indeed uh, uh, a, a crucial important aspect uh, and, uh, and uh, it's the only way to avoid this perverse uh, uh, vicious cycle between uh, a sovereign, uh, sovereign risk and, and banking risk and uh, their, their interaction. So, um, uh, and I think this would be, in fact, uh, one of the hot issues uh, that would, uh, would be um, dealt with uh, during the semester of Italian presidency. So we will try to, uh, to do our best uh, to promote uh, uh, the full implementation because, uh, as I said uh, in my speech, uh, we... We have made progress in creating uh, the framework for a European banking supervision that will be conducted by the European Central Bank uh, with the collaboration of national uh, supervisors, but uh, at the same time uh, uh, there, is, there should be a need to create also the additional institution that uh, uh, form uh, 
a, a credible and, and sustainable banking union, which is the uh, single resolution mechanism uh, and, the, and the deposit uh, guarantee scheme. So these are the three elements that uh, should be, uh, should be uh, put forward. Well, Minister, I think we can all agree we've had a, a very rewarding hour and a half of your, of your time. You've uh, been extremely sure. comprehensive. <laughs> uh, it's been a very rich uh, discussion. You've answered questions very fully. You haven't told us when the next Italian elections will be, but apart from that, <laughs> but apart, apart from that um, you have done the LSE proud and, and you've given it's a really magnificent mind, um, 90 minutes. Thank you very, very much. You'll be welcome back any time. So thank you. And if I could just ask you, when we've registered our, our thanks and enthusiasm in the usual LSE way, just to wait in your seats just for a moment until the minister has a chance to leave the auditorium. But, uh, Minister, again, thank you very much for oh, a thank splendid you. talk. Thank you. Thank you to all of you. Thank you.